Today's episode is sponsored by Unit of Impact, a powerful new platform created for small businesses interested in measuring and sharing their social and environmental impact. And I'll tell you, as a small business owner and a certified B Corporation leader, impact matters. If you are a small business looking for a better way to tell the story of your impact, check out unitofimpact.com. We believe in it so much. We are offering Mission Forward listeners 20% off any annual plan, good through December 31st of this year. Just use promo code EARLYBIRD2022. Want to learn more? Stick around for the end of today's show for a special interview with Unit of Impact co-founder, Polina Pinchevsky. Back to the show. More and more over the years, we've seen the importance of other ways of sharing information and insights grow in importance. And the fact that those other ways also allow us to expand the kind of the scope and of perspective of people who are contributors to SSIR. Hey there, and welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the power of communications. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. And that was the voice of Michael Gordon Voss, publisher of the Stanford Social Innovation Review, who joined me recently to talk about the power of information to power social innovation. Michael has a compelling personal story and an incredible commitment to explore what's possible in how information is curated, how it is shared, and quite honestly, how it's leveraged to increase impact over time. If you're in the social innovation space, SSIR is likely your go-to read. But even if it's not, there is so much to be learned from Michael and the Stanford Social Innovation Review's approach to communications. So stay tuned. This is a great episode ahead. Let's just start at the top and say how excited I am to have some time with you today, Michael, as I spend a lot of my time working on issues of local and trusted news. And when I think about the news that I trust, Stanford Social Innovation Review is right on top. So I am thrilled to connect with you today for a bit about the role that SSIR, as those of us who know it and love it refer to it as, SSIR plays in delivering content and engaging your readers and really thought-provoking and, and leading-edge topics and in guiding organizations to move their missions forward. I would also be remiss to say that um, you are incredibly kind and gracious to be back here on the show with me today after a couple of technical difficulties yesterday. So I am doubly grateful for this time with you today. Well, Carrie, thank you for inviting me on the show. Uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be a part of this uh, in your sixth season. I have to say, I am a little bit nervous because I'm used to being the one asking the questions, not answering the questions. Um, so this is a little bit of a departure for me, but uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Awesome. The tables have turned, but this will be fun. <laughs> this will be fun and engaging, and I know the audience is going to love this. So, Michael, as you know, on this show, we are talking about the power of communications, right, to move nonprofit missions forward, to move for-purpose missions forward, but also this power of communications in bridging divides in advancing justice, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And you are digging into those topics at SSIR these days. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I would love to start with a story. I would love to hear more about you and how you came to do this amazing purposeful work that you do. 
So Carrie, it's interesting, you know, um, I'm a gay man who came of age in the 1980s. And at that time, you know, one of the, the, for me, the major issue was the treatment of LGBTQ Americans, especially in the light of the AIDS epidemic. Um, and that's what first showed me that you can, you know, become actively engaged with an issue and fight for change. Um, but at the same time, while I was doing that through, um, you know, through actions, through volunteerism, I had volunteered as a facilitator with uh, GMHC for many years, um, that was still taking place in my personal life. And in my professional life, I was really centered more on marketing and communications in the for-profit space. And it was only when I moved into media that I started seeing those worlds come together somewhat mm. in the sense that you can, even if you were working for a for-profit company, you could still be very mission focused in what you're doing. So, you know, my first job in magazines and media was with George Magazine. And for those of you in the audience who don't remember what George was, we were uh, a, we refer to ourselves as a post-partisan political <laughs> magazine. Uh, in retrospect, we were maybe being a little optimistic, overly optimistic. Um, but we wanted to be a place where Americans, young Americans in particular, could hear all sides of different arguments in an attempt to actually come to a way forward, to bring all voices to the table, regardless of political orientation, uh, regardless of lived experience, so that that way we could make the country, the world a better place. Mm. Um, after George, I, I went on to Newsweek for five and a half years. Uh, and there again, it was the same sort of idea. We thought by bringing these diverse voices to the table that we were bringing greater perspective on the issues that were changing and shaping the world. Um, and certainly with the seven and a half years I spent at Scientific American before SSIR, that was about drawing that direct line between science research, especially foundational science, mm -hmm. and the solutions that are the technological solutions, the scientific solutions, medical solutions that are helping to reshape our world, many ways for the better, some ways for not so better. Mm -hmm. um, but so again, it was this idea that even in a for-profit space, you can definitely focus on your mission. And one of my big beliefs is that that ability to kind of recenter around mission is what definitely keeps you going when you're going through challenging periods mm. in, in your business. Wow. Um, and then really, it was only when I came to SSIR that I started working specifically for a nonprofit in the nonprofit space. Because um, as you as you know, like nonprofit uh, SSIR, we operate as a social enterprise. You know, we're not funded by the university. So we have to sort of figure this out ourselves and, and walk the walk that we are preaching to uh, the people who you know, are, are kind enough to be part of our audience. You are your own definition of social innovation. <laughs> you practice <laughs> well, what in you a, preach. Yeah, in a sense that, you know, with SSIR, we definitely think of social innovation as something that all sectors mm -hmm. have a hand in. You know, it's it's certainly it's the work of traditional like, nonprofits, foundations, NGOs, but it's socially responsible businesses. It's social enterprises. It's it's government and policymakers. It's and it's certainly academia, you yeah. know, because we think that, you know, we if we bring together the best of of theory and research that's taking place together with the best of practice, then we are generating a space where these insights can help the organizations that are actually doing the work 
right. you know, because we're not doing the work ourselves, but we're creating this space where those who are doing the work can be more effective and more efficient. And ultimately, that'll lead to better outcomes for all of us. Right. So how many years in are you at SSIR? About five and a half years. All right. Five and a half years. Yeah. So if you think back over that time and maybe maybe before you got there, too, but the, the concept of social innovation even feels like it's changed. Right. Like the it almost feels like the it needs a new definition as the as we think about the world we're in now and the stakes mm-hmm. that we see in front of us. We've always had high stakes, but the stakes are high as we think about the issues, uh, the intractable issues that we've been dealing with decade after decade. How do you think about the role that SSIR plays now versus the role that it played five years ago? That's an excellent question. I think, you know, when SSIR first launched, and it's odd, people are always surprised when I remind them that we're only going to be 20 years old next spring, because it feels like we've been such a part of this ecosystem all along. But it's maybe not surprising when you think that the ecosystem itself is not that old. Mm-hmm. You know, the concept of social innovation was still fairly new in and of itself when SSIR launched in 2003. So I think you're spot on when you're saying that social innovation in itself has evolved just as SSIR has tried to evolve in its in its coverage of social innovation. You know, when social innovation first was becoming you know, more commonly understood or recognized. I think people were still thinking specifically about social entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. maybe impact investing, Mm -hmm. aspects like that. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is that, yes, those are still important parts, but we're seeing activism and new ways that people organize becoming a part of social innovation. Mm -hmm. We're seeing greater coordination between different sides of the ecosystem becoming a more important part of social innovation. And we're even seeing ideas that have been sort of fundamental to social innovation concepts like collective impact, that those have continued to evolve over time too. And in fact, just recently, I think you may have seen it, we had uh, John Kramer and Mark Kania, the authors of the original uh, piece on collective impact that we published 10 years ago, mm-hmm. write a new version of that, mm-hmm. where they actually talked about the things they missed when they first came up with, you know, like the five pillars of collective impact. So um, I think one of the other things that's become even more important is, um, you know, we've always brought the, the, the academic, the research, the theory, that, that perspective to the work of social innovation. But I think what we're seeing now is that it's, it's really growing. That, that research is, is coming from disciplines that go outside of just the traditional space that we would think of as, you know, the social sciences or the social sector. Um, so, so really, I think that at the same time that in the world of practice, social innovation is reshaping and growing in the world of research, it's, it's doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad to hear that and think about that. And it certainly comes across in the pages of the magazine, connecting a dot here to Antoinette Carroll, who often says that the person who holds the pen is the person who holds the power. And so it's how the story is shaped, how the story is shared, is how we understand the world around us, how we understand any given issue. And that there are uh, inherently people who are going to have access to, to be among the researchers and people who are not. And I'm so, I've started to see shifts in how you even think about delivering content that broadens the tent a little bit um, to how you think about expertise. I'm curious if there's anything you want to weigh in on there. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. You know, um, I think... For most people, you think of SSIR and you think of our traditional long-form articles. And that's certainly the foundation that SSIR built its reputation on. But more and more over the years, we've seen the importance of other ways of 
sharing information and insights grow in importance. And the fact that those other ways also allow us to expand the kind of the scope and of perspective of people who are contributors to SSIR. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, we've been producing our webinars for over 11 years now. And, you know, our webinars reach on average anywhere from 20 to 25,000 people every year. And the great thing is with a webinar is, you know, you may not have someone who is comfortable, let's say, writing a 5,000 or 6,000 word article, but they are fantastic if you put them like, you know, on a Zoom platform and let them kind of talk through what they've been working on, they really just come to life. And I think that's, that's also true of our conferences. You know, I think we've definitely made a very concerted effort to break out of, you know, the typical sage on the stage approach in our conferences and really bring diverse perspectives and voices into the room um, and often in conversation with each other. You know, so um, one thing I was really proud of in, I guess it was 2020, where we first moved Nonprofit Management Institute because of the pandemic to a completely virtual conference. Um, Not only did we have a record number of people who were able to attend because we were taking away those barriers of time and space, um, but we had an amazing array of speakers who were there. And we also got rid of the as much as possible, the I'm going to stand up and present for 25 minutes and then you're going to ask me questions and instead try to move as many of those sessions into conversations. You know, so we had a great one between former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, and um, uh, Don Gibbs, CEO of the Skull Foundation, you know, talking about what it is to help build, you know, a democracy, a truly multiracial democracy in the United States today. And those are the kind of exchanges that I think are baked into the idea of social innovation being an all-in approach that all sectors have a role to play. Right. Where all sectors Right. I mean, it's, it's just another uh, case in point that you didn't set out or your colleagues didn't set out to just publish a magazine. You know, I mean, there's, no. there's a community of practice here that I think we work, as I noted at the top, with many newsrooms, uh, many nonprofit organizations who are producing news in many different ways, news and information. And many of them are asking, how do we create an engaged readership? How do we create an engaged community? You all truly have thought about how do we make this a two-way conversation, not how do we push information out to the world? And that that seems to really be coming across in terms of how you've evolved, too, as an organization. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's it's great to be recognized for it. And we, we you know, I think like a lot of us uh, in the sector... Um, we often will focus on what we haven't accomplished yet, as opposed to giving ourselves credit for some of the things we have accomplished. So we look at it and think there's so much more we could be doing to foster community amongst our audience. Um, so that is something that we really want to lean into over the next couple of years. Um, but another thing that I wanted to, and I, you and I were talking briefly about this before we uh, started today, you know. We also want to, when we're talking about expanding the voices, the community, one thing that we knew for a while was that, you know, we were missing an opportunity to connect to people who weren't native English speakers. You know, we looked at traffic to SSR.org and almost half of it, about 45%, was coming from outside of the United States, but still skewing to either English-speaking countries or countries where there was a tradition of English 
language. Um, you know, if you think about the fact that part of what makes SSIR what it is, is that we're the space where new ideas are brought forward, where they're tested, where they're often challenged, and we think in that process ultimately made better. We don't want to miss that fantastic idea that's coming somewhere from somewhere outside of North America because the author isn't someone who's comfortable, again, what I was saying before, writing a 5,000 word piece in English language. So if, you know, there's one thing that I'm super proud of over the past five years, it's the growth of our local language editions. And so now, you know, we started in 2017 with a Chinese language edition. And over the years, we've added pan-regional Spanish, pan-regional Arabic, Korean, Japanese, and our most recent edition, our Brazil edition. And it really reflects the idea that we believe the work of social innovation is truly global, not just because issues are global, not just because foundations and organizations and NGOs work globally, but because new ideas are coming up globally. All right. So I love this and we're going to go a layer deeper into this. But first, I want to acknowledge something for those who are listening that there's two pieces I'm hearing from you that feel really important to hold on to. One is to know your blind spots, to be aware of your blind spots, right? You are identifying early on that maybe you were not just missing a piece of the market, but missing a piece of the story, right? Right. And so Absolutely. understanding that and taking action on it feels really important. But the other piece of, of you know, how you move a mission forward, one, know your blind spots. Two, is, is watch and listen for the signals. And I would love to understand if you can take a step back and think about since releasing these six local language editions, but also the kind of thematic information that you see being published over and over again, what are the signals that you see in social innovation that are important to be paying attention to right now, where this field is going? I mean, I think we all see that there's a growing need uh, to address issues of equity in um, the work that we're doing. Obviously, since the events in the United States of 2020 um, with the murder of George Floyd um, and the growing recognition of the institutionalized um, systems of disenfranchisement, of exploitation that exist not just in this country, but around the world. People have been recognizing the need to look more closely at questions of equity and belonging and dignity. Um, so it's not, it's not something that I think is a, would be a surprise for me to say that that's a topic that we see happening all over the sector. You know, we see it not only in uh, foundations and how they're looking at their relationship with their grantees um, and other organizations with whom they partner. Um, we're definitely seeing it in uh, in activist organizations too. Um, but we're even seeing it within traditional nonprofits and recognizing that there are some inherent power imbalances that take place within the organization um, that happen between organizations and their constituents. Um, and that really what we need right now, and this is, you know, we've great, this is, you've set me up for a great segue <laughs> to talk about something we just did a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've seen this desire to address some of these inequities by uh, creating bridging, mm -hmm. by building these connections between diverse groups to be able to get to um, something that's really actionable that can move an organization or move an issue forward. Um, and so I mentioned like you know, two weeks ago, we had our annual Nonprofit Management Institute for this year. Um, first hybrid one that we produced, first time we had people back together in over two years in person. Um, and the whole focus of that was bridging the divide. And where part of that was about, you know, how do you 
find, how do you bridge the, let's say, the partisan divides that are very obvious in the U.S. and around the world? Um, but how do you bridge divides of other sorts? How do you divide, bridge divides between a board that may think one priority is important and a senior leadership team that sees very different sets of priorities? Or between a program team and an organization that's very committed to something and then a community that's coming back and saying, actually, that's not what we need. It's like so. So really, that's that bridging movement is something that I see really starting to become a, a recurring theme as we look as we look at submissions as we talk to people throughout the sector. Um, and I think that that's something that will go a long way to actually addressing that other idea, the questions of equity and justice. Right. So let's go one step deeper there and think about you're on you're on a communications <laughs> podcast. Bridging is pretty effective. A pretty pretty good example of. The role that communications plays in moving issues forward and in bringing people together. If you were to think about those who are attending your events and reading the magazine, you know, so many organizations are struggling with these issues, how to communicate effectively, how to communicate authentically, the workplace is changing, how do I find the right words? And we know it's more than about the right words, but um, what are some of the communication struggles that you see showing up both on the pages and maybe also in between the pages of SSIR? One of the challenges we see not only popping up in the pages of SSIR when we talk about effective communication, but also that we certainly face ourselves, is how do you find a way, and maybe this comes back to the bridging idea, but how do you find a way to reach beyond your core audience without watering down the message or diminishing the quality of that message? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, we recognize that in order for us to really have impact, we can't just be talking to the people who are already aware of the issue or already aware of us in the case of a specialized media like SSIR. Um, so we have to go beyond that core to the next level, to the people on the periphery of it, if we really want it to have impact. But that can sometimes be hard to do because we're dealing with very complex issues, you know, and so... We want to be able to meet people where they are. And I think we all recognize that that's one of the keys to effective communication. And we want to do it in a way that's respectful of both them and the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So it really is a delicate balancing act. But what I think what we found works well is finding people who may not be the traditional voices that we bring to the table when we're having these discussions, but voices that themselves will bridge it, either because they, their experience, their background ties them more closely to this next level of people. You know, I, I in many ways put myself in that camp. I was not, uh, you know, working in social innovation prior to this. And so there are times when I'll sit there and I'll say, okay, I understand this is the concept. I understand this is the theory. How do I translate it to someone who may see this as important, but doesn't yet realize that it's important right. for them. Right. You know, so so I think that's one of the big challenges that we see is how to how to bridge that without without like, you know, to make it very simple without dumbing it down. Yeah, right. Um, but putting a message or putting an idea into practice requires that it be plain language and understandable and simple enough to be able to share with someone else, right? For that trickle down effect to happen. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And I also think that one of the other advantages we have is the changing tools that we have at our disposal. Right. You know, it's like, while in some ways you would say podcasts are not a new technology, you know, that's still something fairly new and experimental. And I know it's not something that 
major media companies were doing 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and But this is a great way to tell stories, to bring other voices in, to have right. a conversation. Right. Um, I was talking to uh, Monica Guzman, who's a journalist and the author of a great book, uh, I Never Thought of It That Way, um, that really is about how to have uh, difficult conversations in partisan times. Um, but one thing she shared was an anecdote about a journalist workshop she went to after she had finished her undergraduate work. Um, and, you know, she had been taught as a journalist to go in with her list of questions. And what instead she learned in that workshop is, no, you go in with one great question and then let the response lead you forward mm -hmm. in that process. And that's something I think that not only serves you when you're, you know, trying to get across information in a format like a podcast or in a webinar or something like that, but actually is something that becomes beneficial in all your communication. Mm -hmm. And not just your external communications. I mean, you know, when you're thinking about what you're sharing with an audience, think about it as if it were a conversation. Think about if I say this, what's that likely to have people start thinking about next? And then how can I, you know, like follow them through that path too. Um, and it's not always easy to do that when you're, let's say, writing an article or putting out a newsletter, but it's certainly much easier to do that when you're, you know, having a podcast or right. having a webinar or having a conference right. or something like the that. The power of a good prompt, right? To right. open the door to <laughs> right. the conversation rather than saying uh, it's, it's the difference perhaps between the power of a really well-written and memorized corporate <laughs> corporate speak versus <laughs> an open door to an actual conversation. And that's what we need more of now. And I think it also, if I can, mm -hmm. I think it gets back to something you said earlier, which is about authenticity. Because I think whether it's external communications or internal communications, and I might even argue for internal communications, it's even more important. I think authenticity is one of the things that is vital to successful communications. You know, right. human beings have a very good sense of sniffing out when someone is being inauthentic. Right. And I think that's even more the case when you are, you know, talking to folks within your own organization, because these are the people you spend most of your time with, right. you know, so they, they should be able to tell, and they know what's going on behind the scenes. So they should be able, they'll be able to tell more than, you know, someone on the outside that this is, this is, you're telling me you're doing this because of X, but I know the real reason mm -hmm. is why. It's true. It's true. We can see through communications pretty easily on, yeah. on what's real and what's maybe not so real or, or not very deep, right? Right. When you made the mention of the six local language editions and you were talking about those, I had this vision in my head of solutions journalism. And I love Tina Rosenberg and David Bornstein and what they started there and how that has now expanded to so many newsrooms and how they play out this idea of solutions journalism. In many ways, I think about SSIR as a solutions journalism publication. But talk to me about the impact of the work that you put out into the world. You know, how are you able to measure our people picking up on the concepts that they're learning and putting them into practice? And are you hearing back when you all come together in your, um, in the Nonprofit Management Institute? I'd be curious how you're measuring the effectiveness of that incredible work you're putting out into the world. Yeah, so it's always tough in media to measure impact per se. You can measure reach very easily. You know, you, you know how much traffic you have to your website, right. you know how many people subscribe to your publication. Impact becomes a little bit harder to get your hands around. What I usually look at is I think about 
topic areas or concepts that at the time they were first introduced, very often in the pages of SSIR, they were very new, like very outside the pale. And it could be something as simple as, let's say, like, you know, applying design thinking to social problems, mm-hmm. you know, um, that we now look around and these are part of the day-to-day fabric of the work of social innovation. And while we can't say that that's 100% us, we'd like to think that since we were the place that helped to, as I said earlier, helped to bring those ideas forward to a broader audience of the social innovation ecosystem, let people challenge those ideas, push back at them, um, you know, um, well, push back on those ideas. That's kind of what improved them and got them to the point where they started getting critical adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I will say that pushing back on ideas is something that we are proud of. Um, you know, it's uh, our editor-in-chief, Eric Nee, was here at the time that we published it, remembers when Muhammad Yunus won the, his prize. That was around the same time that SIR published an article against microfinance or questioning microfinance. And there were people who turned around um, and said, how could you do that? You know, it's like, well, coming to what you were saying, you know, one of the tenets of solutions journalism is that you don't just, you know, just like fetishize the hero. You don't just look at the solution as being this perfect thing. You have to question it. You know, you have to look at the underpinnings because you also want to make sure, and this is where, you know, bringing the science aspect into this, you know, you want to make sure that you can replicate this. You have to be able to test it. You have to be able to replicate it. So it's not just this one-off, right? So going back to measuring our impact, as I said, I think I think we rely on seeing how many ideas that were born and uh, kind of disseminated through SSIR are now part of part of the day-to-day way that the sector, um, the social innovation ecosystem approaches change. Uh, and we that's that's part of what we see as our impact. I can I can only imagine how fascinating it would be to be inside one of your editorial meetings and thinking, you know, are we going to are we going to take this? This is this is a big idea. Are we going to take this idea? Could this be the big idea? Mm, I don't know. Is that too safe? Right. Like you're probably constantly challenging. Where are we going to go? It is. And, you know, we, we what we are trying to do is besides introduce new ideas and test existing ideas, we want to also build upon ideas. You know, we want to give use what we have already accumulated over the past nearly 20 years as a foundation for people to really come up with new solutions built on top of those or, or even better new research on top of them, too. Um, you know, and as for the editorial meetings, it's it's funny. We are getting ready for our 20th anniversary. And so we were having conversations about back in the day when SSIR first launched. Um, you know, they had to go out and solicit contributions for the, you know, like solicit uh, articles for the magazine. Um, and now, you know, I, I don't want to dissuade anyone from submitting an article, but you know, we reject 75% of what mm-hmm. we get. Mm-hmm. So, um, and yeah, you're right. There's always a little bit of that. Oh, are we rejecting something that could be the next you know, big thing? But um, it's, it's the good thing about this work though is, it's never done. You know, if part of what you're trying to do is bring social innovation forward, there is always going to be a new innovation that you can test, that you can, you know, hopefully refine, um, and that will hopefully actually create greater impact on the issue that it's working to address. So pretty sustainable business model you've got there, yeah, as well exactly. as an incredible publication. So, all right, so now we're going to wrap up with one final thought. Uh, we've We've really focused this uh, season on stories at the top and 
what's making you feel hopeful as we as we wrap up here. So what is making you feel hopeful about the future? Um, a few things. I mean, you know, let me qualify it by saying that it's hard to be um, optimistic all the time, especially when there's so much to be pessimistic, pessimistic about right mm-hmm. now. You know, there's challenges to democracy, there's the existential threat of the climate crisis, uh, pervasive social and economic inequity. Um, but a couple of things that I get excited about. Um, so first of all is, you know, you are probably familiar with the idea of the public interest technology movement, you know, um, and much like in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, when there was the birth of the public interest law movement, uh, when people thought that laws were a way to address the systemic inequities in our culture, because, you know, that was a big lever that you could pull, um, but that it required an all-in approach from academia, from government, from the the nonprofit sector, from the the, the, um, civil society space, uh, as well as from the for-profit space. Um, Today, we're seeing technology in that same way. Uh, And I think there are some fantastic people doing things to help move forward this idea of public interest technology and of centering the public interest before technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are folks on the academia side like Latanya Sweeney, who's mm-hmm. the founder of the Public Interest Tech Lab and the Data Privacy Lab at Harvard, or uh, our colleague Lucy Bernholtz at the Digital Civil Society Lab here at Stanford. Um, there are folks in, in government who are doing this. Uh, Alondra Nelson, uh, who uh, really built her reputation uh, in racial justice work, uh, was hired by the Biden administration uh, to be the deputy director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and was up until recently the acting director. Um, you know, you look in civil society, you've got folks like Sean McDonald and Bianca Wiley of Digital Public, um, and foundations, of course, like Ford or Siegel Family Endowment. So I see there are great people who are getting behind this concept of public interest tech, and I think this has a potential to be a really effective lever to help address a lot of the systemic inequities that we see in society today. Yeah. Um, of course, it's not slammed up, but that's what this, this work is all about. Right. The other, the other space that I am optimistic about, and again, I'm hoping I'm not overly optimistic, um, is that there are people who are really helping us work towards building a democracy that reflects the realities of our world today. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in conversation with Angela Glover Blackwell a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we were talking about folks like, you know, Nick Tilson, who's contributed very often to SSIR, who's the CEO of the MDN Collective, um, or of course, Michael McAfee, who, you know, took over for Angela at PolicyLink, but also, you know, people who are less known, like in Seufo, who is the CEO of the New Georgia Project and working to, you know, fight against uh, the attempts to disenfranchise people and put up barriers to voting in the state of Georgia. Um, so again, it's like when you think about the areas that seem to be the reason to be most pessimistic, it's important to focus in on the people who are actually doing the good work to not let that negative future come about, but to actually create the brighter future. Right. Um, and you know, the great thing is that the the pages of SSIR are filled with examples of these kinds of people. And and that's what I think, you know, keeps us moving forward and excited every day. I really love that. And I'll make sure that we link to a number of those 
articles and resources. You know, you're speaking my language. We spend a lot of our time working on issues of democracy and inclusion and uh, the harms to democracy that are often caused by social media and by technology. And so you're, you're really hitting something that I also agree is necessary and urgent to be addressing. And I'm glad that you're spending so much time. We will look in the pages of SSIR for some of that leading edge content. Michael, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for everything you do. And um, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks very much, Carrie. It was great being with you today. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Mission Forward. Thanks for tuning in today. If you're stewing on what we discussed here, or if you heard something that's going to stick with you, draw me a line at carrie at mission.partners and let me know what's got you thinking. And if you have thoughts for where we should go in future shows, I would love to hear that too. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Sadie Lockhart in association with True Story FM. Engineering by Pete Wright. If your podcast app allows for ratings and reviews, I hope you will consider doing just that for this show. But the best thing you can do to support Mission Forward is simply share the show with a friend or a colleague. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time. Today's episode of Mission Forward is sponsored by Unit of Impact, a powerful new platform created for small businesses interested in measuring and sharing their social and environmental impact. And I can tell you, as a small business owner, but also as a certified B Corporation, impact matters, right? Regardless of the size of your organization, we can all have a powerful impact in this world. So I have asked Polina Pinchevsky to join me for a few minutes this morning to talk to us about Unit of Impact. Polina, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carrie, for having me on. I've been an admirer of your organization for many years. So it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. And as a fellow uh, owner of a B Corp company, I'm especially excited to talk about a new venture that has come about um, and born out of relationships of three B Corp owners. So myself, and I have two co-founders, Russ and Alisa, the three of us have built a digital platform called Unit of Impact to really answer problems our own small businesses were having. And that is how do we keep track of all the various impactful you know, actions we are taking for our businesses, whether on a social level, environmental level, or community-wide? How do we know where we are at any given point in the year? Are we meeting our goals? Are we moving the needle? Are we, are we ready um, to talk about it when asked the question? Do we have the data at our fingertips? And then how do we communicate it out to our own employees, our own stakeholders, whether it could be employees, it could be customers, it could be investors, you know, there are a lot of different audiences. And this is the conversations worth having with all of them. So how do we create a tool that makes it a heck of a lot easier for small businesses to actually communicate their social and environmental outreach and impact report that doesn't require hiring an agency that may be expensive and complex of a project to take on for a small business. You know, Paulina, I love this so much because speaking from personal experience, the weight of developing an impact report, which we have done every year since becoming a B Corporation, is a full-time job in and of itself, right? How much time and effort it takes to track the impact throughout the year and then to deliver that in a powerful report. 
What you and your team have done is really incredible here. Tell me a little bit more about the team, about the three of you and why you decided to come together and do this. I've had myself, I've had an agency called Roundpeg that's been a B Corp for the past 10 years. And, and we've been in business for 20 years. And we were doing a fair amount of advocacy campaigns and impact reports for our clients. And we knew firsthand what kind of heavy lift it is when you do the custom route. My partner, um, Russ Darter of Oliver Russell, they've been a social impact agency for, I think, 25 years. They're based out in Boise, Idaho, and uh, a very red state. So he's had a very different experience, but he's been a B Corp pioneer for, I think, as long as we've been, at least 10 to 12 years. Russ and I always used to have this conversation that we work with so many companies that do so much good. They're just really good businesses. You know, they, they care about their employees. They care about their customers. They often make unpopular decisions because it's the right thing to do. So, but yet they're so poorly communicating that out. They're not very good at talking about it internally or externally. And it was just something that was like, we would always compare notes on and talk about until one day we said, well, is this just an our mind? So is this really happening? And basically initiated a research study and asked the, a lot of other folks in the small business community, like, how are you communicating your social impact? Well, and how are you actually tracking it? What tools are you using? What are your pain points in this space? And the answers were very revealing. And we realized that, whoa, there's a business opportunity here. We're not the only ones who are kind of feeling this way and feeling the pinch of small business owners. Um, since this was going to require technical expertise, we knew we needed a technical founder on our team. So we approached Elisa Hare with Unity Web Agency in North Carolina to join our team as our kind of tech lead. And the three of us have been at it for two years. It ended up being incredibly complicated. The, the more layers you sort of start peeling, the more you realize how complex it is to do something like this. And we continue talking to a lot of small businesses in the B Corp community and outside of the community, businesses that are interested in, you know, having a social and environmental impact, learning from them, and kept building a tool that now looks at impact across four areas, governance, people, community, and environment. The fifth module of the tool is actually creating an impact report where you pre-select one of the three available templates and it walks you through it. So you don't have to think about and do a lot of research into like, what are the elements of an impact report? What should I include? What order should I include it in? You know, the structure, the very basic structure is there. And then because we've given you examples to follow and there's actually verbal prompts that take you through this and give you kind of examples, it, cuts down on the amount of kind of mental energy you need to expand on just what does this thing sound like? How do I pull it together? What information is relevant? You know, you can really just focus on what, what have you done this year that you want to talk about? And if it's two or three things and that's it, great. Talk about two or three things. It's important. You know, we all on this journey of making a difference. And sometimes it's one step at a time. Sometimes it's two step forward and one step back. 
you know, it's a journey. No one has it perfect. No one has it right. Um, so I would like to encourage all small business owners to not shy away from taking this, you know, taking that first step, even if you feel like you're doing next to nothing. It, you've got to start somewhere and small steps are okay. It is a really smart idea, Polina, and I'm so glad to learn more about it and share details of it. You know, I hear so many times from organizations, particularly small organizations, we're too small to have an impact. And we all know that that's not the case, right? Small small doesn't mean you can't have an impact. You can, in fact, have uh, still a significant impact and do it smartly. And it sounds like this tool is a great way to, to measure that impact. So I would love to be able to um, extend an offer that Polina and team have shared with us for listeners of the Mission Forward podcast. You can head over to unitofimpact.com and start a free trial with 20% off any annual plan. I'm good through December 31st of this year. And the promo code to take advantage of that offer is earlybird2022. So Polina, thanks for joining us today. Congratulations on the incredible launch of Unit of Impact. And we look forward to seeing where the tool goes from here. Thank you, Carrie.